Okay, we're in the third chapter of John's first letter, and we're starting at verse 4 and carrying on to verse 10. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. This is the word of the Lord. As we stand, let us pray. God of light and love, we pray now that you would shine your word into our hearts. That it's shining there as it reveals our sin would draw us for the first time or afresh to the love that forgives our sins in the cross of your son. We pray, Lord, that you would fill us with your spirit, that we would hear your word, that we would believe it. We would live it. And these things we ask that your name may be glorified, your church extended, your name revered to the ends of the earth. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, do please be seated. Well, which sin cost? Matt Hancock, his job. Was it his affair, or was it his now rather public failure to adhere to the social distancing rules that everybody else, he was saying, had to obey? There's no question, in terms of political reality, that it was the latter. He had committed the unpardonable sin of hypocrisy, telling us to do one thing while he was doing another It didn't really matter that it was an adulterous affair by which he was breaking the hands-face-space rule. He might just have been, well, engaging in a little sumo wrestling uh, in terms of the moral uh, question for our culture. But he had told us to do one thing, he did another, and therefore he had to go. And I guess you saw uh, this week the uh, depressingly unsurprising comment of our neighboring bishop to the northeast, the Bishop of Manchester, uh, who described uh, the affair, uh, which was the cause, in fact, of the breaking of the social distancing rules, as just a middle-aged bloke having a bit of a fling. Extraordinary, really, to hear a Christian leader saying that of adultery. Uh, To be fair to the bishop, uh, he was quizzed on that. He had a little more uh, of the awfulness of adultery's consequences, uh, uh, but only in response to Nigel Farage reminding him that perhaps a bishop ought to have something to say about adultery. 
It's hard to imagine, isn't it, a Christian leader for whom that really was the primary issue. Uh, The ephemeral piece of human legislation keeping us from a disease, dreadful though it is, or the abiding uh, divine commandment uh, that is designed to keep us from everlasting damnation. Well, it was the hands-face space, apparently, that was the greater transgression. I wonder, though, whether actually uh, the Chancellor ought to have been the one uh, asking for Matt Hancock's resignation. Did you know that it costs around £51 billion a year of public money to mop up the broken families that are caused by adulterous affairs and people walking away from their marriages? Even on a purely human and financial level, uh, the grief and the cost is eye-watering. So what would Jesus have said to a man taken in adultery in such a way that it appeared uh, to be rather staged? How did that CCTV footage uh, from a secure government building end up on the front page of a red-top newspaper? Somebody must have released it. You'll know the story, of course, uh, in John uh, chapter 8, even though that's almost certainly not its original context. Very similarly, a woman in this case uh, deliberately caught in the act of adultery. Uh, On that occasion, the man allowed to flee into the night. So we know what Jesus would say to a poor person caught uh, by their enemies in the midst of an act of adultery. Jesus says to that woman, and Jesus would say to Matt Hancock, neither do I condemn you. That is, if you would come to me for forgiveness, you would find it. Find it in abundance and find it immediately. But now go and leave your life of sin. There's a call to do what is right, to recognize the law that God has given and receive the grace by which he enables us to begin walking in obedience to it. And both of those responses are at odds with our culture. Uh, we live, actually, in a, a culture that is becoming far more harsh Uh, even though the opposite will be said to us, than the gospel is. You transgress against the modern secular moral codes, and there's no opportunity of forgiveness. You will just be cancelled. Your job is done. Your place in the public square is over. Jesus speaks a word of grace to those who are caught in sin, if they will come to him for forgiveness. Neither do I condemn you. The second part of what Jesus says to that woman taken in adultery is just as rare these days. There's no question of any change of moral sensibility uh, to be required of anybody in these days. We must just be allowed to be uh, who we identify as being, and you must affirm me, uh, or there can be no relationship. Jesus challenged to her, go and sin no more, uh, live a life of repentance, uh, is just as alien to our culture as well. How good it would have been to hear somebody making that connection uh, this week, uh, an offering to this man who has transgressed so publicly a word of grace and the call of the gospel to come and recognize that God's commandments are not advisory and in the end they are non-negotiable. Neither do I condemn you. Now go and leave your life of sin And sin is the theme of this section of John's first letter. Uh, In fact, if you noticed, as Jackie was reading it out for us, uh, the word sin in some version 
uh, is used ten times uh, in these uh, seven verses. It's hard to miss uh, the overriding subject at the heart of these verses of John's letter. I've underlined them for you there on the screen, uh, just in case you thought, oh no, here he goes on sin again. How could I do otherwise with this passage before us? This is what God says to a world in sin. Either they've been caught out in that sin and put on the front page of a tabloid newspaper, their marriage over, their children devastated, uh, and all the wreckage that has come upon that man because of his wickedness, or whether they're the secret sins that not a soul knows about, or whether, like so many other sins, they're somewhere in between. This is what God's word says to us, sinners, in a world full of sin. So what is that message? Well, uh, here uh, John uh, makes four points, and he makes them twice uh, in slightly different ways. Uh, And that's the reason that I've put these verses beside each other. Uh, So if you're looking at your own Bible, you can just do this by looking down. Uh, But I've put them on the screen to help you see uh, that John is making similar points twice in four separate ways. Uh, First of all, he's talking about sin itself in verse Uh, 4 and the first part of verse 8. Then second, uh, he speaks of the Savior, who is Christ, and how does he respond to our sin and deal with it. Then uh, verses uh, 6 and 9, we hear what the gospel means. When the work of Christ is applied to us, what does it look like? And then finally, uh, we hear in verses 7 and 10 uh, what the entailment of that, what the outworking of that is. As we go from here, sinful people, and yet trusting in a saviour, receiving the benefits of his gospel, uh, and then living our lives in our marriages, in our homes, in our workplace, in our schools, wherever the Lord places us uh, day by day in our lives. What does it look like to be a gospel-shaped person? So those are the four points. Uh, And as I say, John uh, approaches each of them uh, in a slightly different way twice. What is sin? Who is the Savior? What does the gospel mean? And how then should I live? Those are our four questions. And we'll go uh, through them uh, one by one, looking at each complementary truth. You can think of these two columns as the proverbial two sides of the same coin, Uh, Each side different and yet giving uh, a complete message about the subject that John is then addressing. So sin, uh, verse 4 and the beginning of verse 8. John talks to, uh, tells us here uh, of the nature of sin in verse 4 and the origin of sin in verse 8. And the nature of sin, he says, is lawlessness. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. Why is adultery wrong? To stay with the presenting issue from our media this week. It's wrong because there is a lawgiver. There is a God who gave us marriage and who hedged it about with the commandment, you shall not commit adultery. Such that there is an inviolable integrity to marriage that once God has joined a couple together, only he can separate them in death. And there is a moral obligation to persist in marriage until death comes. And so you shall not commit adultery. That is the law. And therefore sin is lawlessness. To break, sin is to break the law. Uh, it's, uh, I'm 
Dreadfully sorry that poor Mr. Hancock has provided us with such a perfect example in the news this week, but that is exactly what it is. And that's why it's serious, you see, because this is a matter of breaking divine law, eternal law, law which one day we shall stand before the lawgiver to give an account of. Acts of Parliament come and go, as God willing, this miserable pandemic will soon depart and hands face space will be consigned to the history books. But you shall not commit adultery is an abiding word from God for the whole of this age. And sin is to break the law. Sin is lawlessness. Now, lawlessness is more than just the individual breaking of a law. It speaks of the the character of a rebel, of someone who, with a high hand, says, I know that's the law, and I am going to do the opposite. And John, if we've been with him on his journey, uh, we know uh, that, of course, he's not speaking about certain individuals in public life. The gospel condemns all of us as lawless, as lawbreakers, as rebels. Oh, we are sinners. We are in our very nature, uh, Paul puts it in a vivid and disturbing phrase, the children of wrath by nature. By nature and instinct, uh, we reject the right of our God to teach us how to live. Very opening character, a very opening story of the Bible leads us on uh, to the second part of this. In the origin of sin in the devil, he who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Remember the very beginning stories of the Bible? If you're new to the Bible, uh, at least read Genesis 1, 2, and 3. They're the, uh, the foundation on which the rest of the Bible is then uh, built. God creates human beings, male and female. He creates them. Uh, he then gives us marriage. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife. The two will become one flesh. And immediately after that, the scene moves, and Eve is challenged by the devil by the Satan. They've had one command at this point. Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That is, do not take to yourselves the right to determine what is morally good and morally evil. And Satan whispers into Eve's ear, did God really say? And she listens and humanity falls. And since then, every single one of us by nature and inclination and corporate membership are her descendants. We are, by nature, the children of wrath, children of the devil. How tragic, then, to see the Methodist Conference uh, this week, uh, knowing those scriptures so central for all Christians, to listen instead to the voice of the devil rather than the voice of God. Did God really say that marriage was between one man and one woman for life to the exclusion of all others? Yes, he did. And no majority in your conference will change that. How tragic to see one of our greatest denominations turn aside from the voice of God and attend instead to the voice of the devil. But this is the nature of what sin is. And we see in that, again, not a reason to condemn others, but to beware ourselves. For his arguments are persuasive, and our sinful nature is easily led astray by him. We like breaking the law. We don't like appearing on the front page of a tabloid. But we like living life our way, according to what serves our interests best. Now, the nature of sin, lawlessness, the origin of sin, the devil. Did God really say, yes, he did? Yes, he really did. And so, in that light, 
of sin in all its darkness, in my heart and in every one of our hearts. What has God done? Well, he has sent the Savior. Here is the good news. Uh, Verse 5, but you know that he, that is Jesus, appeared so that he might take away our sins. And in him is no sin. Remember John the Baptist cried, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the same John the Baptist who denounced the adulterous relationship of the king of the day and had his head chopped off for it. So let's have no nonsense about Christians not speaking about politics. You're coming to St. John the Baptist's church uh, who behold the savior of the world and be warned when you sin publicly, God is no fool and will hold you to account. And there's a cost to be paid for that. But this Jesus who takes away sin appeared for that very purpose, the sinless one to take away the sins uh, that enmesh every single uh, one of us. And John has spoken of this at great length uh, throughout his letter. But just look perhaps at chapter 4, verse 9 and 10. Uh, This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as the one who would turn aside his wrath, taking away our sins, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Jesus came to take sin away from us. You ever tried to uh, remove uh, bindweed in your garden? Uh, we have, and we gave up. Uh, it's absolutely impossible. Uh, even the most diligent of gardeners will despair at its impossibility. And sin is like that. It wraps itself around us at the core of our being and leaves us condemned by God. And Jesus came to remove it all, to take it away from us. Neither do I condemn you, as he said to that woman taken in adultery. Or again, uh, John says, not only did Jesus take away sins, but he came to destroy the devil's work. The devil's work, remember, was to cause us to doubt God's word, to rebel against it in lawlessness. And Jesus comes to destroy him utterly. There's a a wonderful uh, encounter Uh, buried, uh, I guess, for most of us in the uh, Old Testament book of Zechariah. Let me just read you this account, Zechariah uh, chapter 3. It vividly illustrates uh, what is going on here. Then uh, he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Uh, Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, see, I have taken away your sin and I will put rich garments on you. Then I said, put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. That's what the cross does. That is how the devil is destroyed. Because not that I don't have sins in my life and will do until my dying day, but because Jesus has paid the price for them. He has borne the wrath due from an angry God because of my sins. And so he has nothing left to accuse me of. Because Jesus Christ has taken my sins away. Everything I've ever done, everything I ever will do, everything that is wicked right within me now, like that wretched bindweed that covers, uh, that extends to every fiber 
of our being. The devil is speechless because there's one who's paid the price, who's borne the dirt such that we might have his cleanness. And we haven't time to explore it this morning. I'm conscious of the Sunday school children, but uh, this destruction of the devil's work in the end is absolute. That is, this will be the destruction of death, which comes as God's judgment, the destruction of illness and alienation that comes as the entailment and the consequence of our rejection of God. In the end will come the destruction even uh, of that which uh, binds our planet, which causes it to go out of sync uh, because of the wicked choices that we have made who live on it. No, the Son of God appeared to destroy the devil's work. How? By taking away our sins. Uh, So there is no condemnation for those who come and abide in Jesus Christ. I love this verse uh, in uh, Hebrews Uh, Chapter 2, since the children, uh, that is us, have flesh and blood, he, that is Jesus, too, shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Are you afraid of death? Are you afraid of one day facing God, knowing that he knows you intimately? Well, then come to Jesus because he takes away our sins and he destroys the devil's work so that we might have the glorious liberty of the children of God as our present experience and blessing. I love that verse at the end of Romans 16 where Paul says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. It's not good to entertain murderous thoughts about any of our fellow human beings, but in the gospel we can look forward to the day when the devil will be smashed and destroyed and every wicked entailment of his influence finally gone and the liberty and life and peace and joy untrammeled for the children of God living in a renewed heavens and a new earth. We must move on. Uh, What is the gospel itself? What does that say uh, to us? Now, here, uh, we must frankly confess uh, that uh, there is a bit of a problem. John seems to be describing our repentance in, frankly, slightly alarming terms. Because I don't know about you, but I find that I'm still a sinner. Uh, Maybe some of you have discovered the secret of uh, endless perfection. I'd love to meet you. Uh, I suspect slightly naughtily because I'd like to prove that it's not really true, Uh, but... Actually, it's not our experience, is it, to achieve perfection in this life. And John seems to be saying something rather alarming here. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. Or verse 9, no one who is born of God will continue to sin. And I read that and say, well, I know I've sinned even this morning. Should have heard what I said to my children at quarter to ten. I know I will continue to sin. So does that mean I cannot be saved? There's a danger that it appears that way. But in fact, John is describing our security in Christ. He will come on in the last section to talk about repentance and obedience. But in verse 6 and verse 9, I want to argue that he is speaking of our security, our unbreakable security in Christ. You see, the problem uh, with reading it as it appears to be is, as I've already said, our experience, but it's also because I could just be a particularly wicked preacher. You might want that card and the gift back again, having just confessed to you that I am still a sinner. 
Maybe there are others who don't sin anymore. But actually, in 26 years of experience as a Christian pastor, I can tell you every Christian I've ever met still struggles with sin. So there's a problem with our experience, but maybe we're just a particularly unrevived period of church history. Well, even if that were true, and perhaps it is, the real problem we have in reading John's words are John's other words. So uh, John says in chapter 3, verse 6, no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. But he says in chapter 1, verse 8, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. In chapter 2, verse 1, he says, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. And he clearly does not understand that as an empty set. There are believers who still sin. And indeed, if we claim to be someone who is without sin, to have discovered sinless perfection, he says we're a liar. We're only deceiving ourselves. The truth is not really in us. It would be a kindness if you were to come to me and claim sinless perfection. And my job was to show by arousing you to sin that this, in fact, was not true. Because you're only deceiving yourself. And I would be helping you to see that self-deceit and turn away from it. So the problem with John's writing is John's writing. Can you see that? If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. Uh, No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. So what are we going to do with this? Well, we believe that John is writing with the Spirit of Christ, and therefore there can be no uh, contradiction between these different truths. Even if you don't believe that, allow the man a modicum of respect. Uh, He's unlikely to contradict himself in the space of a few sentences. Uh, He writes far too beautifully and uh, um, uh, with such intelligence for that to be an easy Conclusion. So what is going on as we combine these two strands? If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. No one who lives in keeps on sinning. Now the usual explanation, and the one you've probably heard before, and if in the end you find this convincing, I won't argue with you, but I don't find it convincing personally. The usual explanation is that John is speaking in one place of habitual sins and another place of occasional sins. So that what he means in chapter 3, verse 6, is no one who lives in him keeps on doing the same sin again and again throughout his life. The trouble is, I often find it is the same sins I keep doing. So that's no great comfort uh, to me. Uh, But the, the other verses, if you follow this argument, are those occasional sins that we do. So we're not perfect But we're making progress and there's no settled patterns of sin in our lives. That's not a bad conclusion, actually, for much of what the New Testament says. But I don't think it's here. And the particular problem that that has, and I'm sorry to get into Greek tenses on a Sunday morning, but actually, if you want to translate 3.6 in the sense of an ongoing habitual sin, no one who lives in him keeps on sinning, your problem when you come to chapter 1, verse 8, is that John uses exactly the same verb in exactly the same tense. And if you translate 3.6, if no one who lives in him keeps on sinning, you have to translate 1.8. If we claim to be continuing without sin, we have to use that continual uh, sense, and in which case we're not helped there either. So what we need to do, actually, is to uh, learn uh, from the old uh, translation. The authorized version is right, and the NIV and every other modern translation is wrong, I believe. So what we ought to do 
is. Translate six nine, uh, sorry, uh, verse six and verse nine like this: No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has either seen him or known him. Or verse nine: No one who is born of God will do sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot sin because he has been born of God. If you're following, and I'm conscious this is hard this morning, it's perhaps the most difficult section of John's letter. Uh, You might think I've just made everything worse. Because uh, now John is either contradicting himself uh, or saying to us here, well, we can't be saved at all. No one who abides in him sins. Actually, it's not that at all. It's quite the opposite. Verse 6 and verse 9 are the promise not the demand of God. Let me say that again. This is so important. And for years I've wrestled with this personally uh, because I I argue the mistranslation of our modern uh, versions. Verse 6 and verse 9 of 1 John 3 are part of the gospel promise, not part of the gospel demand. What John is saying in verse 6 is that at the cross, Jesus really has taken away our sins. And that even though we still sin, and even though we still live in a world where the entailments of sin, broken relationships, destruction, death coming, are all around us, he really has removed it from us. And the time will come, as we thought last week, when we see him face to face, and the devil's work is entirely gone, and sin is absent. Well, that future blessing is our present possession. And in that sense, as we abide in Jesus, that is, we trust him today and now, well, there is no sin in our lives, not ultimately, not that will last, not that will condemn us on the last day or take from us the richest abundance of God's blessing as his children. And that is true because we know him. Because in the gospel, we've seen him full of grace and truth. And he's reached out his hand to you and you and to me and said, come and know my forgiveness. I've taken away your sin. And as we abide in him, well, then we know the freedom. This is John saying what Paul says in Romans 8. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We're abiding in him and therefore there is no lasting sense in which sin entangles us anymore. The same uh, is in verse 9. It's the promise uh, in verse 6 of the cross, the promise in verse 9 of the new birth, uh, the gospel seed. That is the spirit or the word of God. Not sure what John means here. Uh, Keeps our eyes trained on Jesus so that when we fall into sin, We fall into sin as those who know it's incongruity, who long for forgiveness and freedom from the power of it. We're born of God. How can we possibly be rejected again? No, no one who is born of God will literally do sin. That is, uh, do the sin of rejecting the one place where it finds forgiveness in the cross of Jesus. Because God's seed leads us in brokenness and renewed repentance and perpetual failure. It leads us again and again to the cross and to our new status as the children of God. He will not reject those whom he has adopted in him. I love the way that Martin Luther puts it so vividly. When the devil, he says, throws our sins up to us, 
and declares that we deserve death and hell, we ought to speak thus, I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? Does that mean I shall be sentenced to eternal damnation? By no means. For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction in my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Where he is, there shall I be also. This is the promise of God. This is the rich blessing of the gospel of God. We are the children of God, and our sin has been, past tense, dealt with and taken away from us. The devil is powerless and can throw nothing at us ever again. Well, what does that mean? I'm well out of time, uh, and so maybe we ought to come. Well, we will touch on these themes uh, as we continue uh, through the letter. But finally, John does come to the entailments in the Christian life. Uh, remember Jesus to the woman taken in adultery? Neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. It's not that sin doesn't matter. It's not that we acquiesce simply because it can no longer condemn us. Uh, no, John is wanting to say, don't think that just because God is endlessly gracious, therefore you can justify endless sinning. No, dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray about that. The gospel does save us, but it also changes us. He who does what is right is righteous. Just as he is righteous, there must be the doing of right, obedient things in the light of the law of God for those who are the children of God, freed from our sins by Christ's cross. Our obedience matters. It is the evidence that the gospel of grace has really landed in our hearts. All the same in verse uh, 10. Uh, You're a child of God, so live as one. And that means obedience to your father. It means love for your brothers and sisters. That's the theme that John will pick up on as the weeks uh, go from here. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. The evidence of obedience and love is vital, but it's not the way in which we are saved. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we've looked at some wonderful words, but also some words that have tripped even your followers up through the years. Please, Lord, help us as we think of sin to turn from it, to recognize it in ourselves, to recognize its infernal origin, and to flee again afresh today, now, to you and to your cross. Oh, Lord Jesus, we praise you because you have taken away our sins And destroyed the one who would accuse us. And we thank you for the great blessings that are ours in you. That as we abide in you, as we know you, as we become the children of your heavenly father. So you speak to us of the confidence and assurance we may have in you. In spite of our ongoing battle with sin. But Lord, would you take us from here and lead us to be those who do what is right and who love our brothers, not to establish a righteousness, but because you've given us one. And these things we ask in your name. Amen.